Hi, and welcome to Declarations, the human rights podcast run out of the Center of Governance and Human Rights, CGHR for short, here at the University of Cambridge. I'm Surer Mohammed, and I'm a PhD student in politics at the University of Cambridge. And I'm Matt Mahmoudi, I'm a PhD student at the Center of Development Studies, and we're your hosts for this season of the Declarations podcast. With every episode, we'll be exploring contemporary debates about politics and human rights with the people who study them, the people who fight for them, both here in the UK and around the world. Today, we are talking about refugee rights in international and domestic contexts. We have the absolute pleasure to speak to doctoral candidate in the sociology department here at Cambridge, Rabia Nassimi. And we're joined by our panelists, Niusha Bastani, Arindrajit Basu, and Rachel Kay, who'll be filling in for Michael today. So my name is Rachel Kay and I'm filling in for Michael Barton today. I used to work at a refugee organisation which uh, provided holistic services for refugees in London. This was an interesting experience for me because I saw how at the grassroots level we can tackle people's difficulties with integrating and it raised a lot of questions for me about which level of organisation is the best for promoting integration so should we rely on government to do this should we rely on schools um is education important in this or should we look to charities to provide more localized services i'm hoping rabbi will provide some interesting answer to this uh given that we work together at this organization yeah this is a bit of a more personal episode for me as well um, because my family arrived in canada in 1993 um, as refugees from the civil war in somalia Um, although i haven't done that much academic research on it um, the question of integration um, especially in the somali community um, all across uh, western europe and in north america is a quite pressing one and one that raises really interesting questions about um, discourses of belonging and racialization Um, And as a predominantly Muslim community in the quote-unquote West, uh, we are imbued with discourses of threat and terrorism um, as a black community as well. Um, So I'm just really interested to see uh, how the conversation unfolds. Without drawing too much on previous episodes, uh, from a similar background in a sense that my folks came to Denmark, also from Iran, um, after the revolution of 79, and one of the predominant narratives in the Danish context uh, where, where they moved to has always been sort of integration versus um, assimilation. Because although integration is what's spoken of uh, by politicians and by decision makers, um, it's, it's usually assimilation in disguise. You can try and integrate as much as you want. You can get into schools that are considered quite mixed and, and affluent. Um, but at the end of the day, Your skin color and your background comes to define a lot of how you're considered and a lot of sort of whether you can be Danish or not. And I think that's an interesting dynamic to to, to also try and untangle during during this episode. So while my experiences with this aren't as personal as as Matt and Surya, um, in 1947, my grandparents who were Hindus from Dhaka were basically kicked out. And um, it was... uh, a tragedy because a lot of 
Dhaka and and Kolkata at the time were both sort of hubs of of I mean religious sort of confluence between both Hindus and Muslims, and then this sad event happened. I've heard a lot of stories from my grandfather about how his school friends just I mean they lost touch simply because they didn't have Facebook in those days, and and those are I mean very sort of heartwarming heartwarming stories to hear. So of course integration and and assimilation are are. vital things that that we need to look forward but what i wanted to bring up was to what extent the countries that do in fact receive these individuals have certain extent of legal obligations and how the uk in particular has been carrying them out so a shout out to my friend and fellow lawyer daniel ferguson who's fed me with a lot of uh, very interesting research on uk's policy so just three points i'd like to make very briefly on to clarify w- what what exactly is going on there so the first is that we hear the term the terms refugees and asylum seekers very often and it's a very simple distinction and a refugee is someone who has been granted refugee status by a state and asylum seeker is someone who is in the process of applying so you're saying that a refugee is someone who has made it through the process but an asylum seeker is someone who is at the beginning that's a, that's a very good way to put it sir yeah exactly right i mean asylum seeker is someone who is sort of is in the process of getting refugee status till he is recognized by that state he's an asylum seeker as as per law and once he or she has been granted that status by the state um he is termed refugee but really the distinction is more of i mean legal semantics more than any, anything else because at the end of the day these people who are applying you can't keep them in in dormancy for far too long and, and those are also issues that that will need to be addressed i have some uh experiences working with these sort of com- communities and enclaves between Bangladesh and India and India doesn't is not a signatory to the refugee convention they um don't have a refugee law so there are just these people who are living in these enclaves between India and Bangladesh who are in limbo for a long period of time and I and I did work do some re- legal research for an NGO that's trying to sort of fight for their rights but of course it's all dependent on a very powerful and not so caring state um so just two more observations that daniel wanted me to make with regard to uk's policies that the first is that um a january 2017 report by the home affairs committee was fairly critical of the economic um conditions such as accommodation that were provided to to refugees um there have been also reports in the guardian which have criticized britain for having the worst refugee policies in europe to what extent they are true um I'm not sure, but that's just something that is interesting if the listeners are want to follow. And finally, in March 2017, the Home Office said that asylum seekers would be automatically be granted granted settled uh, status at the end of end of five years. But um, it's also possible that if there are quote unquote safe conditions back home, then they may be asked to uh, go back. and so of course the decision of what constitutes safe condition is not the refugees to make but it's the judge who is hearing hearing that case so that was also something that did spark some uh discussion and 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 comment uh, in march when it was released but of course those are issues that i don't have the expertise neither as daniel to sort of comment on further but those are things that readers uh, the listeners could read about more if they're interested really interesting um there's also the yarlswood detention center there uh There's a movement called the Movement for Justice by Any Means Necessary uh, stages and demonstration outside of this demonstra- uh, this detention center um, that houses asylum seekers who uh, either have uh, uh, overstayed their claim or who are uh, whose claims have been rejected. Um, the the center specifically houses uh, m- 
primarily women and children. Um, and there are many times that uh, people are deported basically effectively in the middle of the night. Um, so the movement of rare justice attempts to uh, prevent uh, these kind of abuses. But Yarrowswood specifically has be, uh, come under fire for um, unfortunately really uh, unsafe conditions as well as um, uh, abuse by some of the guards who work there. Um, and then also just the psychological trauma of existing in this liminal space between uh, the life that you envision for yourself and the life that um, awaits you back when you are forcibly ex exiled from the country. So... I think one final thought there before before we move on to segue into our, our discussion uh, with Rabia. What you're mentioning here, Sarah, really brings up this notion of home to me, which is which is a really interesting one, because objectively speaking, it seems stuck in time when policymakers um, and, and folks on the end who are sort of supportive of the idea of repatriating folks back to where they came from, they have a static notion of what home is. And it appears that like, you know, at any given moment in time, no matter what happens in that home, whether the community moves away, whether, you know, the place uh, looks different, whether the neighborhood doesn't exist there anymore, the notion of home um, is a, a really subjective matter, and that's completely neglected in the narrative of we can just send them back because it's safe. Um, and it completely neglects the idea of you've started a new life and, and sort of what you envision for yourself, as, as you're mentioning here. So. Maybe we can untangle the notion of, of home as well here and, and what that really means in the context of, of refugee rights. Yeah, and I think on that note, because Matt ended up by saying refugee rights, I think a notion that hasn't come up in our conversation yet is rights. And I think one thing that's really important to think about is we're thinking about refugees in very difficult conditions um, in loss that can be unfair or very restricting. And I think the reason rights sometimes doesn't come up is a sense that the state doesn't have very many obligations to refugees, that it's helping them out, that the state is basically like acting out of kindness or generosity. Um, and so sometimes the question of rights gets passed up. And I think that's really important to keep in mind in our conversation. Okay, great. So bringing that into our segment with our interviewee. Um, my name is Rabia Nassimi. I'm a first year PhD student at the Department of Sociology. And my research will be looking into issues of identity in relation to Afghanistan. I also work and volunteer at the Afghanistan and Central Asian Association. And it's a charity organization that's based in London. Thank you so much for having me uh, today. Um, I also have um, a personal journey. Um, my family and I came to the UK as refugees in the year 1999. But on top of that, I've, um, my connection with the refugee stories doesn't stop there because I continued to work alongside my family to support refugees in integration. So it's something which um, I've kept in touch in, especially as I arrived to the UK at the age of five, so I wouldn't have remembered much of my journey. So being in touch with refugees to today reminds me of perhaps some of the difficulties that my parents faced when coming to the UK. So Rabia, you said that a lot of your work is around integration, and I'm wondering if you could start by speaking a bit about why you think integration is important and what that concept entails for you. Sure. Um, so the reason why I've been working around integration uh, is because of the challenges that my parents faced um, coming into the UK. So two years after their arrival uh, in the year 2001, um, 
my parents, my mostly my father, he felt like there wasn't enough mainstream services within our local community, either targeted at refugees or the Afghan community. So he had this idea of um, opening up an organization that will cater for these people who are going through the obstacles that he was facing at the time. Now, um, I was with my older sister um, at school and we had constant contact within an educational setting so for us it was a lot easier to to learn English and to kind of understand the educational system and subsequently how to navigate ourselves around society so but for my parents that was still a challenge and I I do remember um starting to help my parents in finding their way just because we had um, understood the language a little faster than them. So that's how the organization was set up and it was set up based on personal um, experience. Now, um, why I believe integration is important is because without integration, it's hard to be able to lead a successful life in the host community. And by integration, I think, what I would define as integration is being able to keep in touch with your own culture, your your um, what, what you brought with you from um, from your back back home, and uh, being able to kind of live within the host community as well, and understand their values and norms, and not necessarily having to depart from from your existing background. Can you talk a little bit about the challenges that you're talking about? Because, um, like, as far as linguistic, of course, that's that's a big issue. When you were talking about um, catching up first and having to catch your parents up, that's something that a, a lot of um, second generation immigrants in general, but also specifically refugees, tend to uh, tend to experience. So, what are some of the challenges that you might face um, economically, um, or in in a, like or social isolation for example what are some of the challenges okay so initially i think language is most important because without language you're not able to kind of find friends as easily or apply for jobs but obviously language is not the only barrier when you come into society um and you want to for example apply for housing or um going to a particular office uh, i don't know if it's applying for benefits all of this requires some understanding of the system whilst that needs language it also needs some support and some moral support and emotional support which you can't get unless you have a network that you're associated with so that's why i think charities and organizations are important because they not only provide people with the knowledge of navigating yourself around the system but also um it provides refugees um, with someone that could listen to their story, that can understand the troubles they've gone through and um, understand the complexity of their issue. And then from that, uh, providing holistic support. Because um, like f within the Afghan community, I know many uh, families suffer from depression, isolation, mental health, trauma from the journeys that they've come through. Um, also, perhaps if, if they've had family that have been left behind and there's war going on you have thoughts about your your family back home so there's all these difficulties that also need to be addressed and that's why sometimes mainstream services can't provide the very particular and holistic service for everyone's needs um, and organizations and other networks can kind of fill in that gap so you're talking about the centrality of knowledge in integration and I'm wondering, how much is it the case that people understand what rights they're entitled to, that refugees understand that, that they have access to that knowledge, and how important is it, do you think, that they are able to realise those rights? What, what importance does that 
have in the process of integration compared to the other factors you're talking about? Yeah, I think knowledge is really important. And without knowledge, for example, you wouldn't know whether a certain um, benefit is applicable to you, whether you can apply, what your children are entitled to, and what access you can get um, in in mainstream society. And like just yesterday, I was speaking to a refugee um, and she was talking about um, living on a very low wage and that she's kind of part-time um employed but that only covers her housing um and she didn't know that she was eligible to apply for housing benefits now she knew the language but not the language was still not at a level where she could use it to find out information and access information online or go to the right places so although language is important it depends on your level of language and also for example whether you can use a computer whether you're able to find your way around a particular community and know where to go for help i think that's really important so going back to um, your definition of what integration means, particularly with reference to it's a sort of a it's a it's a hybrid existence. It's an existence in which you bring your own culture to the new culture and find a way of harmoniously existing. It appears, at least um, in in my context, uh, it, it it feels a little bit different in the UK, um, but I may be wrong on this. That that there is a push towards integration actually being assimilation a sort of requirement that you would strip yourself off of your previous culture and inhabit all of the values of, of britishness or in my case danishness and and all of the all of the traditions and foods and 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 kind of dress code that comes with that before you can be considered a functioning part of the society mm-hmm. so i'd like to go back to my personal experience and like being brought up in this society I haven't felt like assimilation has been like a push for me or my family now um, I say that because I came here at the age of five and one would assume that I'd no longer speak my mother tongue but I do and when I go to Afghanistan I don't necessarily feel like I'm I'm too foreign um, inside Afghanistan I understand the culture and um, and the people and I think that like whenever I've been studying or whenever I've gone around, met new people, like the diversity of the society is something that everyone's spoken of. Or for example, being bilingual has always been spoken highly of and not necessarily, um, I I haven't been told that, you know, English is more important than your home language. So um, in my situation and like in the situation of my family, I think we felt that like it was more integration rather than assimilation. You mentioned that family members that might arrive into a host country um, will have different experiences amongst them generationally um, of their experience of integration. Um, and so, for example, a child who has contact at school hours and is more linguistically capable than um, someone who is older because they're more uh, malleable at that age um, might actually be in the awkward position of teaching their parents about the culture or the community in which they now live. I was wondering if you could tease out some of those kind of um, familial dynamics and how they relate to the overall integration Sure. So with um, children, um, especially at a young age, they come into a system where it's compulsory and they know they have to go through it, which is which puts them at an advantage because sometimes, especially with women um, in relation to the Afghan community, um, some of them aren't allowed to to be in education. And that's because of family pressure and that obviously not having the compulsory element there slows down their integration. But um, 
I think the contact that children have allows them to kind of quickly get a grasp of the system and with parents it is a much more slower process and I think the UK is quite tolerant in terms of when you start college and when you're you're going to enter education so there isn't very much like a lot of pressure on on the older um, like adults in uh, learning the language as quick as quickly but in terms of like children then going on to teach parents I think that has that's quite an interesting relationship that starts to form around like parental responsibilities but also about like how the extent to which children look to their parents as as role models because now they're they're the parents teachers rather than the parents being their guide and I think that's um that's that can pose an issue in society because as a child um you're kind of told to go to parents for support but in fact you're supporting them and that could mean that as you're growing older you start to lose kind of trust in in their support and guidance and you can go to alternative sources of um i don't know people and networks to find your answers and those those networks or the people that you then associate with might not necessarily be providing you with the right guidance and that's when um, you can go into like antisocial behavior or any like criminal activities, not necessarily because um, you want to, but because of the gaps that you have within your like personal development that kind of makes you more vulnerable to alternative sources of information. So this is a really interesting point. And, and, and this is a point that in my experience, I've, I've taken issue with because in the sort of in the larger TV debates that happen every now and then where someone who is a second generation uh, refugee, for example, will come in and have a conversation with a Danish person. um, And on the other side, there'll be another former gang member. And the second generation refugee will will claim that, you know, your your parents just just didn't raise you right. You know, it it all comes down to your parents. Um, And I think there's a complete lack of understanding for how integration happens at these different levels and how much of responsibility a kid has to take sometimes which detracts and distracts from from their own ability to, you know, learn f- from their folks in a way that they would have under normal circumstances. And I think it's outsourcing of, of, of blame for everything to, to parents, which happens in, in a lot of Western and certain uh, very ethnically homogenous Western societies is, is really dangerous and detrimental to to the experience of if integration. Yeah, um, working with some mothers, um, I've what I've noticed is that a lot of these women want to know about the education system want to know about how to support their child and whether that's just like reading a report from school or attending parents evening it's not that they don't want that responsibility they do they just don't know how to go about to gain the necessary information to be able to then transfer that to their child and so I think that when services and support are provided to children we need to also make sure that parents receive similar support because if we can keep the family bond strong then obviously that can deter other people from exerting influence within the family setting yeah so having spoken about lived experience now um and the lived experience of some of the uh, people that you've been working with as well i think it's a good idea to kind of move into policy so how does policy impact the experience um of refugees uh, that are going through the process of integration um and some what are some of the ways that policy impacts on this conversation about rights from an indian context i, I speak from a position of anger more than more than anything else um with regard to re- recent political inflammatory political rhetoric on re- on refugee policy the indian government and not just the government but also like 
educated upper middle class people have made comments such as oh these people from bangladesh or these rohingya will will are either already radicalized or will get radicalized spread radicalization there is so they they, are, they pose a national security threat all this bellicose rhetoric keeps on coming on to television and i mean there there have been noted generals of the army who've made comments such as oh look at germany they let muslims in now look there are so many issues there and personally i find this rhetoric i mean just logically flawed because i mean letting more people in leads to a far more vibrant society but i am completely unaware about the situation in the uk but from your experiences do you think that this form of this fear of radicalization can be combated through grassroots organizations and the sort of work you're doing and do you think that if it is in fact combated then um this political rhetoric in certain states but i mean in such as india would possibly not exist anymore um i think grassroots organizations have a very vital role to play in terms of um supporting integration and supporting people in understanding life in the uk um or in any other country um so that they can slowly feel like they're part of the society and i think um in terms of radicalization like we need to understand the grievances that people have that can potentially lead to radicalization and that's with any individual like refugee or non-refugee it could be someone who's like been born here and raised here and like if they feel isolated if they feel like they don't have any like emotional support if they feel like there is any gap within their within their life they're going to look for alternative sources to help kind of uh, provide them with solutions and so um it's not necessarily a matter of one group being more prone to radicalization than others it's just that we need to combat some of the experiences that that can um go towards someone becoming radicalized so we've spoken so far about the diversity of experiences um within the refugee community and just how many different ways people experience being in a new country and so i'm wondering how can we make policies that are not one size fits all that actually address the multiple challenges people face Okay. So um in terms of policies and having policies that aren't one size fits all is is perhaps something that's quite difficult because like I've just spoken about the Afghan experience there's going to be a different Somalian experience in Iraqi or Syrian um and so it's going to be very difficult to cater for everyone's particular needs but what I think can can happen is for example when implementing certain policies looking at the implementers and how much knowledge they have of particular regions how how familiar they are with the culture and who they then kind of select or provide funding to to provide provisions that are kind of working towards that certain policy so um it's i think like understanding the history the background the current kind of political situation and is a very important when dealing with diaspora communities because when like someone comes from a particular country and seeks refuge in the UK they don't necessarily remove all their previous experiences as they come in so that has a very big influence into how they integrate and how they wish to choose their lives and i think an understanding of those 
particular differences that each community has is really important because we can then cater services for everyone's needs like for example just as an example like um as an organization we realize that some women might be uncomfortable in a mixed setting when coming to learn english and perhaps mainstream services that are mixed that are, are the reason why these women aren't using them so knowing that you can go to somewhere to to be um, taught in an environment which is women only provides them with the confidence, self-esteem, but also it teaches them um, the language which they then might be able to use in a in a non-segregated session. They might then have the courage and confidence to be able to go out and use mainstream services. And it's not. I, I also don't agree that with um, keeping the community kind of amongst themselves for for very long. I think communities can provide good foundations for people that come into the society but it's also it helps them transition on to mainstream society which they should ultimately like go to have a goal towards so from everything that you've said so far it's very clear that integration is kind of a two-way process so all this work can be done at the grassroots level and at the policy level um, to help communities integrate but then you can't really integrate into a society that's not doing their part in bringing you into the society so what kind of work do you think needs to be done so that this really becomes like a two-way process and not just a one-way attempt? Um, I think community cohesion is really important. Um, interfaith dialogue, bringing in communities from very diverse backgrounds. So if, for example, there's an event on refugees, we should have equal number of non-refugees also attending so that they understand the stories and the journeys that people take and why they take them. Um, like taking this back to my personal story, um, over the past few weeks I've received quite a lot of media coverage about coming to the UK as a refugee and my academic achievements. And reading some of the um, comments that people have left um, on these posts have, I think, stemmed from, from ignorance. I don't think anyone like knows me that well or has a particular hatred for me. Um, if someone's talking about me coming and taking their job or taking their place at university, it's just because they haven't had enough information um, about perhaps refugee stories or refugee situations, why people flee a country and what they do when they come to the UK. Like I've gone through the education system just as anyone else has. I haven't been put at a at, at an advantage because of my background. And I think it's really important that people understand this because it's when they don't understand they have assumptions and those assumptions might be wrong. So it's really important that um, we also support and educate people from non-refugee backgrounds. And these can be through very fun and engaging sessions. It could be, I don't know, celebrating Eid with non-refugees, or it could be, um, I don't know if you have a, a, a cultural event um, or any other event, whether it's New Year, it's about bringing these people together and like through music, through arts, through um, very fun activities and allowing them to understand each other a bit better. On that question, um, do you have a duty to... Okay. <clears throat> so this is just a question that I was interested in asking um, because a lot of the question, the ignorant discourses that you were just talking about center around this concept of gratefulness, um, that you should be grateful that you're here. Um, it how how do you respond to that kind of way of thinking um and do you think there is a duty to love or even to adjust to the ways of life of the country of your destination 
um, or is that an option that you can choose to do? Okay, so I think being grateful um, is important. I think, for example, myself and my family are grateful. If I was to be in Afghanistan, I don't know whether I would have finished education or what my situation would be until now if I had survived uh, some of the conflict. Um, and um, I think adjusting or trying to adjust um, your way of living to the host community will support you. You don't necessarily have to let go completely of your your own culture and traditions and lang language, but also trying to, at the same time, learn the language of the host community is going to support you, it's going to support your family, you're going to be able to support your children, and um, you're going to keep you know the bond strong um, within the host community. So I think that is important, and it, especially for people that want to be um, in education and want to be employed um, whilst they live here, um, learning the language and kind of trying to adjust to the system is important. Of course, that doesn't necessarily mean that you should change the way you dress completely or you should you should change the way you live and what you do and where you go, like your hobbies and so on, but just trying to maintain a, a balance is important. So, wow, what a what a truly thought-provoking and and fascinating conversation we've had today. Um just reviewing some of my notes went back to what I was saying in the beginning of the podcast in terms of the technical difference between a refugee and asylum seeker. And that does exist in terms of state policy across the world. But if you look at rights in international human rights law under the Refugee Convention, the idea is that no state grants you the right to be a refugee. You are a refugee by right and you have the Katina rights associated with being a refugee as long as you satisfy the criteria in, in Article 1F. But of course, as, as Matt was just men mentioning, um, it doesn't matter because states at the end of the day the refugee convention is is just a document and that's enough of reason to be pessimistic about that document as it is to be pessimistic about any other doctrines of international human rights law but just taking the pessimism out for a moment i think that international human rights law exists and continues to thrive not in elitist meetings in geneva or through the legal discourse on the documents it exists and thrives through people like rabia the work they do, the lived experiences they have. And if international human rights law is to have any meaning, it's through conversations like these and the work of people like Rabia. So refugee, asylum seeker, technical terms, McDonald or immigration, all that's great. But really what actually matters is what people like her are doing. And it's so fascinating having her on board today. Before we wrap up, I'm wondering whether Rabia has some thoughts about what she'd like her audience to take away from today's conversation. Um, I think every refugee experience is very different uh, and people fleeing their homes don't necessarily have a destination in mind. They're, look, they're seeking for safety and they want to go and live in a society that will accept them and a society in which they can call home. And I know that for, for, with my parents, when they left Afghanistan, they didn't have London in mind as a de destination. They just thought that we wanted to, to be in a society that will accept us and a society in which the, the whole family can um, thrive so um, it's it's important to bear that in mind when looking at refugees and understanding the difficulties they were faced with um, and why they fled their homes thank you so much Rabia thank you so much to our audience for joining us today and to our panelists if you like what you're hearing please find us on iTunes search for declarations the human rights podcast leave us a review and a rating also, you can find us on Facebook, 
slash Declarations Podcast or at Twitter on our handle Declarations Pod. Thank you so much and see you next time. See you later.